Welcome to the Lucas Rockwood Show. I'm a yoga teacher, a trainer, a serial entrepreneur, and a father. First and foremost, though, I'm a student. I love learning. I started this show a few hundred episodes ago because I wanted access to smarter people. I wanted a platform where I could call up PhDs and medical doctors and biophysicists and all kinds of interesting people and learn stuff about the human body, about personal growth and development, about health and nutrition, and of course about yoga, things that I'm interested in. And it's been a real pleasure to find out that thousands of you, in fact, tens of thousands of you are interested in tuning in every week to follow me on this journey. So I really appreciate your support. On this week's show, we will be talking about boot Takeo breathing. We've been talking a lot about breathing recently. About nine months ago, I released a TED Talk called Change Your Breath, Change Your Life, and I was initially really disappointed. It didn't get many views at all. I thought uh, that another one of these topics that I'm interested in that nobody cares about, like edible insects. And lo and behold, here we are nine months later, and the video is getting like 10 or 20,000 views a day. And I'm getting emails every day, so I'm really excited because it seems like there's a huge interest in breathing. And bigger problem, there's a huge confusion about breathing. And the biggest confusion is that most people assume breathing is all about oxygen, and it's not at all. In fact, most breathing practices are about manipulating CO2, oxygen levels, in the blood at least, stay relatively consistent. This week's show will be chatting about Buteyko breathing, which uh, originates from Russia but and has been used primarily to treat asthma. I got formally trained in Buteyko breathing, I guess it was uh, six years ago, spent a bunch of time with a Buteyko instructor, and I found it really, really helpful. Very different approach than yoga breathing, but the principles are still the same. Learning to control your nervous system, learning to calm down your body. This breathing practice in particular is designed to increase your tolerance to CO2, to vasodilate, so to dilate your breath passageways and, and your veins. And even though you decrease the amount of oxygen in your blood in the short term, you actually increase the amount of oxygen absorption. It's a bit of a paradox that takes a, a few minutes to wrap your head around, but once you understand it, it'll really change your perspective on breathing forever. Like a lot of health modalities, there is a lot of hyperbole around the Buteyko community. Ideas that if you're able to do a control pause for over 60 seconds, suddenly all of your ailments will disappear and you only need to sleep three hours a night and these kind of things. I'm not sure why this hyperbole creeps into every alternative health circle, including yoga. If you read Iyengar's book, you know, if you read Light on Yoga, certain poses are meant to detoxify your spleen and other poses are meant to rejuvenate your sex organs and all kinds of ridiculous claims. I'm not sure why all of these practices are so powerful without hyperbole. I'm not sure why teachers and you know they gravitate towards hyperbole. I feel like it actually puts people off. So hyperbole aside, there are real, real documented health benefits, most of them around asthma. But even if you're not asthmatic, you'll find huge benefits to being able to understand CO2, manipulate CO2 to calm down your nervous system and to create a parasympathetic nervous system response, rest and digest response. Hope you find this episode helpful. If you like this show, support me by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Tag me on Instagram. It's at Lucas Rockwood or at Yoga Body. And your questions, comments, and feedback are always most welcome. Just email me podcast at yogabody.com. Enjoy the show. So hello and welcome everyone. Today's show is called CO2 is your friend. CO2 being uh, carbon dioxide. And I am joined here with Dr. Artur Rakamov. Artur has been teaching the Buteyko method and breath retaining to thousands of students for more than 17 years. He was trained by Ludmilo Buteyko and Dr. Anthony Novolazov, MD, the chief physician at the Buteyko Clinic, the original Buteyko Clinic in Moscow. He's trained numerous breathing practitioners around the U.S. He's based in Canada and also in Germany and Denmark. You can learn more at his website while we're chatting. Normalbreathing.org is his website. Artur, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Lucas. So what is your educational background? How did you end up becoming interested in, in breathing specifically of all the things you could get interested in? <laughs> yes, it's, my story probably would be quite interesting because my doctoral degree is actually in physics and mathematics. So, yeah, so I, I graduated from the Moscow State University and got PhD there. And what happened, I worked as a research scientist for a number of years. I worked as a teacher of uh, mathematics in high schools in Canada, in Ontario, for several years. 
And gradually I kind of got interested in breath because, well, first of all, I had my own serious health problems at the end of 1990s and early 2000. And I tried all type of technique, therapies, methods, and nothing seems to be working, diets and uh, you name it. So, uh, and then all of a sudden I like found in a library, it was at the time before like internet became uh, kind of common and popular, like 2001, uh, I discovered a book because it was a time like again, like when I would get um, most of my information from books. <laughs> and so so uh, I found a book about uh, a Buteyko briefing technique. Uh, uh, one book was by Alexander Stalmatsky, trained by Dr. Buteyko, and then also Theresa Hale the, like the, uh, from the Hale Clinic in London. She also wrote about the Buteyko briefing technique in application for asthma. So I tried this method and it seems to be we are working really well. I, uh, uh, I think uh, I went online 2001 or two and started to learn from Russian sources. Somehow, like I was surprised we had plenty of information in Russian. So and that was my uh, like mother main, main language, I would say second, my second language and became my main language. So uh, I learned uh, a lot and I discovered also large communities of uh, first people and then also communities of practitioners. Uh, especially from Australia, New Zealand, some in Europe and United States, Canada probably just started uh, very few people teaching uh, Buteyko briefing technique there. And I, I realized that actually these people have kind of uh, limited information and limited knowledge understanding because uh, I tried it on myself and within like days I uh, made like very large changes which I could not achieve in years of previous trying. So, and uh, that kind of in a way predetermined because I became uh, involved. I, I, I wrote a book for practitioners, which I updated, uh, I think, four or five times. It's called Normal Briefing, the Key to Vital Health, uh, one of my books on Amazon. And uh, later, like, uh, yeah, like quite soon I started, I, I trained my, my relatives, <laughs> my mother, my father, my nephews. So, and, and uh, later started to teach groups of people in Toronto and later other places, created website, wrote like small book, later wrote book for the Frollo briefing device, another popular therapy in Russia with hundreds, actually hundreds of medical doctors teach, uh, uh, for example, Frollo briefing therapy in, in Russia right now. And the Buteyko technique is actually now probably would be on the second place, but it is still very popular. And of course, um, numerous doctors across Russia teach this technique to again thousands and thousands of people. And what was what were your health challenges, if I can ask, back in two thousand one? Oh, there were many. I have testimonials on YouTube. I had chronic sinusitis. I had infect infections, really severe infections, like. With my athletic background, like uh, uh, and especially my love for winter sports, like running, cross-country skiing, it was uh, very devastating. In at the end of 1990s, I would go running or go skiing, and then I get a cold, and like for a whole week, I have like uh, very high temperature, totally blocked nose, mouth breathing at night, sweating, like could not train, like uh, severe infections. And so uh, uh, blood sugar regulations was very bad. Like uh, if I eat a meal and my blood sugar skyrockets and I get a reactive hypoglycemia, you know, when you start to sweat, tremble, and you feel totally miserable unless you realize that you need to eat a snack. So I had this type of problems and uh, uh, that would be just some of them. And uh, virtually like all these uh, uh, health problems, symptoms disappeared really fast, I would say, probably in the range of like two, three days. And uh, I, I started to enjoy running. I could go running with nose briefing. That's like one of the requirements of the Buteyko technique. And so later I kind of developed my own approach because uh, Dr. Buteyko made a couple of amazing discoveries, I believe, like two very, very fundamental discoveries in the area of uh, health and management of chronic diseases. And one of them is he realized that and managed to measure that uh, when people get sick and sicker, the respiratory parameters became worse and worse and in, in the direction of breathing heavier and faster. So people start to breathe more air, we hyperventilate. At the early stages, we do not notice. And when maybe it could be already too late, we may realize that we actually breathing too heavy. But unfortunately, doctors pay too little attention to breath of patients when we arrive, let's say, to a, like to emergency room or even like when you go to, to a visit uh, to, to your family physician or general practitioner. 
And that's a big problem because uh, I believe it's an extremely powerful technique. And the reason I was uh, I got involved in it, especially like I would say last maybe six, seven years, I'm full time because I'm uh, making videos, I'm making uh, books, I teach people online, I teach Skype classes. And the reason why I get involved in it is that in my view, in my experience of like teaching health for so many years, I can now say that this is the only health therapy like brief, talking about briefing retraining, is the only health therapy that, in my experience, always works. It's a really great point that, you know, there's so many different tools out there, all of which are great, you know, working on your sleep, working on exercise, working on diet. Meditation, of course, is super popular right now. But one of my, one of my challenges with meditation specifically, and I've trained extensively myself and, uh, you know, coming from a yoga background, I have huge experience with meditation and I love it. But it doesn't always work. And what I mean by that is people will go into a meditation retreat setting with some kind of big existential crisis, some kind of health crisis, overwhelming anxiety, depression. It, it just doesn't always work. It doesn't always make things better. In rare cases, it makes things worse. So usually the worst case scenario, things stay the same. But the, the outcome is not that predictable. And with breathing, it, it's so consistently positive and it's weird that it's ignored, which is where I'm going with this question. Why do you think of all the tools that we have out there for self-care, for our health, whether it's optimizing sleep, whether it's doing exercise, whether it's focusing on a balanced diet? Why do you think breathing is last on the list? And for most people, it's completely ignored, whether it's the medical community or alternative health communities. It's largely ignored still to this day. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, first of all, it's definitely so that uh, uh, if we talk about quite sick or severely sick people, it is uh, uh, quite difficult to change their breath. So to, ch to change the breath, I mean to make a permanent changes in the automatic or unconscious breath pattern. That means the way we breathe during sleep and when we, when we do not pay attention to the breath. Because this is exactly the purpose of the Buteyko breathing method, like when he developed this te technique originally in 1960s. So the, the idea was to, uh, of course, first as a scientist, he analyzed like what is the way people should breathe. And of course, there is a medical norm which you can find in medical textbooks, which like uh, six liters per minute for an average person, like 70 kilogram weight per person take 10, 12 breaths a minute. And that about half liter only tidal volume, like the amount of air we need uh, per one breath is very small. And what, what is known from science, you can find, of course, data uh, if you open homepage of normalbriefing.org that, uh, first of all, people with chronic diseases breathe about two, three times more than the medical norm. So two, three times more, that means we have hyperventilation. And like this is, as I already mentioned, like kind of tricky hyperventilation because it's in a way hidden. Hidden means people uh, can breathe twice or three times the norm, and they would not even realize that we are actually breathing way too much. So that's one tricky part. Another tricky part relates to psychology because I spoke with thousands of people and I myself, when I started this method, like I could not believe that we need to breathe less because all my life, like with my PhD background, athletic background, coaching background, I always, I always thought that <laughs> if you breathe more, you get more oxygen. And then all of a sudden in this book, we say, well, it's all opposite because in medical science, we know it for more than 120 years. It's like proven long time ago. And since then, there are hundreds of more studies which confirm that, that the more you breathe, the less oxygen and blood supply you get for your brain, heart, and all vital organs of the human body. So that's like psychological part because uh, more than 90% of people believe <laughs> that it's necessary to breathe more. It's good to breathe more. So And doctors kind of ignore it because in a way, well, doctors kind of, it's long story story we can talk about like uh, uh, medical industry big pharma and so on because we are trained to use drugs surgeries and other techniques so we could be kind of reluctant or maybe uneasy to explore things related to diet or physical exercise or sleep like more natural things and uh, of course briefing included as well now what is uh, kind of another topic you already uh, uh, like started to talk about is related to that for example people pay attention to sleep or we do meditation what happens with breath that actually in order to make permanent changes in one's breath, we need to address all these lifestyle together, sleep, diet, exercise, and that would be just biggest ones. In overall, I probably can make a list, uh, maybe 200, maybe more factors, 
that I know uh, could help to different people. And the problem is that for different people, that would be like different set of factors, lifestyle factors, which are negative. I can maybe mention to you few because like, let's say when I start to work with uh, sick people or very sick people, it's a uh, most common thing which uh, I, I found uh, kind of extremely uh, common for people with chronic diseases uh, relates to sleep. And so I, I have uh, also web page and you, on YouTube videos, I have videos which discuss uh, the effect that actually highest mortality due to heart disease, like uh, epilepsy seizures, asthma attacks, and all these exacerbations of uh, acute like uh, health problems, uh, they most likely to occur during sleep and highest mortality happens when people are in bed between four and seven o'clock in the morning. So people who work like in emergency in hospitals, like we know this effect. I actually spoke with some doctors, nurses, who are aware about this, uh, because for me it was a surprise many years when I was uh, writing a, a book for briefing teachers that uh, in Western science there are a lot of, I found more than probably about 12 or 13 studies, epidemiological studies where doctors, Western doctors uh, measure it and discovered that actually sleep is the most dangerous time, four to seven o'clock, early morning hours. But Dr. Buteyka, what is very interesting, that he actually not only knew about this effect, he pinpointed two very like kind of noticeable uh, and crucial factors which makes sleep of sick and severely sick people safer. And so these two factors are following. Uh, he realized that uh, when people sleep on the back, supine sleep so-called, people breathe much more. And so we get less oxygen and that uh, makes them more vulnerable to all, all type of attacks. So this is factor one. And therefore he trained his patients and doctors uh, how to avoid supine sleep. So you can put like, let's say a tennis ball or you can make a put a scarf on your mid, uh, mid chest and make a knot, move this knot on your back so that w when you sleep on the back, you will feel discomfort and you will turn maybe on your left side, right side or chest. That's one factor, sleeping on the back. And he also noticed that uh, when people are severely sick, it's very common for them to breathe through the mouth at night. So mouth breathing at night, he realized extremely uh, influential factor for severely sick. And so he, his patients actually in 1960s developed themselves a technique which is now very popular, known as mouth taping. So you can take a surgical tape from a pharmacy and like and put a cross or a long, some people even put on cheeks to keep the joint place. So some people use chin straps. So there are various methods and techniques which prevent mouth breathing. And that's uh, among, again, two, I, w I found most kind of influential initial factors which people can use in order to survive through the night, because that's uh, for severely sick, this is exactly like what is, this is equation to, to how to survive. Let's break down this CO2 paradox for people. I always think that uh, CO2 has a public relations problem similar to like fat, dietary fat, because it sounds like something bad. CO2 sounds like a waste product that comes out of a industrial factory, which it, which it kind of is. And, you know, just like fat sounds like the stuff that's on somebody's midsection. They don't want to eat it. But just like you need to eat dietary fat to be thin and be healthy, you need CO2 to be healthy. And so again, a lot of this is just the counterintuitive aspect of it. When people think about breathing, they immediately think more is better. They immediately think more breathing, more oxygen. And the paradox of that is very difficult for people to wrap their head around. So let's just unpack a typical breathing pattern and the role of CO2 and then an optimized breathing pattern and the role of CO2 specifically in terms of what's happening with the oxygen exchange so people can understand why, why, why more is not more. Okay, so if we talk about first the medical norm for, for briefing, uh, the medical norm, as I already mentioned, about six liters per minute, people need 10, 12 breaths a minute, but in relation to CO2, the normal value of arterial carbon dioxide, because CO2 is kind of a little bit mysterious, actually, also in relation to measurements. And in Buteyka community itself, so we have like uh, quite many discussions and recently I made videos about how to measure carbon dioxide uh, for our YouTube channel. So what happens with carbon dioxide, normal value for arterial CO2 is about 5.3% or 40 millimeters mercury at sea level. So this, is, this number can be found in medical textbooks. So when person breathes more, what happens, of course, the carbon dioxide level uh, is going to drop. First of all, in the lungs, the, when you take a few deep, deep breaths, 
So instead of normal, again, about 5.3% uh, alveolar CO2, so-called, uh, very closely matches arterial CO2. So we are about the same number when people do not have a ventilation perfusion mismatch, so-called, like when lungs and heart function normally. So when people take a few breaths, CO2 level drops in the lungs, maybe down to 4.5, 3%, severely sick, maybe as low as 2.5%, uh, 3%, much, uh, about twice less, uh, less than the norm. And if you continue to hyperventilate, even like with mild or hidden hyperventilation, as we discussed, as most people have these days, uh, in about one, one and a half minutes due to circulation, carbon dioxide levels uh, drops everywhere in human cells. So brain would be the last one because blood-brain barrier kind of uh, takes a bit like 10-15 minutes for CO2 to equalize. And uh, But again, like final story is, uh, is going to be the same, that carbon dioxide level become low. So what is the problem with low carbon dioxide? Uh, when people have normal breathing, what happens, uh, blood oxygenation is very high. So if you take oximeters, so you can measure using other devices, you can find that a healthy normal person would have about 97, 98, maybe even 99% of blood saturation with oxygen. So this oxygen would travel via uh, hemoglobin or red blood cells to tissues and the tissues is going to be released. Now, what happens when carbon dioxide level drops, let's say like somebody starts to hyperventilate due to maybe stress, emotions, maybe overeating, maybe not doing enough physical exercise or sleeping on the back as we discussed or mouth breathing. So due to all these factors, so when CO2 drops, the first effect which takes place virtually immediately is constriction of blood vessels. So CO2 is known as most potent vasodilator. This is like the quote which I found in some medical studies. So most potent vasodilator, that means that this substance is extremely powerful dilator of arteries and arterioles. And as soon as we breathe just a little bit more, our blood vessels constrict. So if we go to maybe to a bit of extremes and let's say, let me think about the following hypothetical situation. Let's say I, I'm now going to hyperventilate for one minute. So like I start to breathe heavily, let's say not six liters, but maybe 50, 60 liters per minute, much more. And so what is going to happen with the average person? Well, a person would feel dizzy and actually most people are able to faint or pass out in about two, three minutes. So the question is, okay, why does it happen? Well, what, what happens is that uh, when you breathe more, your blood oxygenation actually is not improved because it's already uh, near the top. We discussed like 97, 99% with very small uh, normal breathing. So therefore, when you breathe more, you actually cannot get oxygen in the first place because you already have plenty of oxygen with minuscule or very small normal breathing. What you actually do, there is one major effect, you remove carbon dioxide. And as soon as you remove carbon dioxide during this, like, again, hypothetical experiment, when you have two, three minutes of forceful hyperventilation, uh, all your uh, arteries and arterioles uh, constrict. And so the carotid artery going to the brain with like supply of glucose or fat, ketones, for example, or, and oxygen to the brain constricts as well. So blood supply is restricted about two times when you have quite like serious hyperventilation. And that means brain, like what, what it does, it actually basically shuts down the frontal part, the conscious part in order for other parts to continue to function. So because oxygen supply is limited and the brain still needs to control, let's say, heart work, the work of your other organs, and like, uh, of course, conscious part become least, least important, so therefore people are not able to think normally, so they pass out, they faint. And that happens because of overbreathing, and that is due to a lack of carbon dioxide. When people do not have this heavy hyperventilation, as I described in this case, like 50, 60 liters, but we breathe, let's say, 12, 15, 18, as a lot of sick people do, and uh, probably more than 95% of modern population, I have statistic again on the homepage of normalbreathing.org, we also have heavy breathing at the range of 
12 liters per minute or more, so twice the norm or more, uh, which is like kind of a modern uh, standard, but it's not a, a medical norm that was established about 100 years ago because this medical norm, six liters, and some old medical textbooks can even mention four, five liters per minute of air, very small amount, long time ago. And uh, that's changed dramatically during 100 years. I have so-called historical graph on the homepage where I show that actually old studies from 1920s, 1930s, they show numbers about four, five liters per minute. And recent studies starting from 19, about 1990s, we show about 12 liters for so-called normal subjects. So for people listening, let me just summarize. So, so CO2 is a vasodilator. It'll, it'll dilate, meaning open up your air passageways as well as your veins and your arteries and your capillaries. Yes. Yes, it dilates. Yeah. Uh, it helps to relax smooth muscles and smooth muscles we have inside blood vessels, inside airways. Uh, also, digestive tract, smooth muscles as well. So it helps to uh, relax uh, and uh, normalize the work of the digestive, digestive, digestive tract as well. And so when people are breathing really fast and they think that they're super oxygenating their body, what they're actually doing is closing the doors and not allowing their body to absorb oxygen, correct? Because if we don't have those vasodilators, if we don't have the if our if our air passageways and our and our capillaries and our those those muscles you mentioned if they're not open people cannot absorb the oxygen that they're pumping in if the smooth muscles are not relaxed the even though their blood oxygen saturation might be at 99% that doesn't is not necessarily an indicator of their cellular oxygen levels correct absolutely right yeah that's right and that's exactly like when people open again home pain of normalbriefing.org, we see a nice brain image which uh, reflects this phenomenon when people hyperventilate. You can see in colors that uh, this is like PET scan, you know, when we do uh, oxygen isotopes or glucose isotopes to check how much oxygen is present in different uh, cross sections of the brain. So when people hyperventilate, this is exactly the effect, the amount of oxygen delivered to the brain. But uh, totally the same effect was discovered and confirmed by numerous studies in relation to uh, heart, kidneys, colon, spleen, liver, like different organs of, of, of the uh, organism. That when hyperventilation takes place and carbon dioxide level drops, vasoconstriction takes place and the amount of blood and oxygen uh, are reduced. The example that you gave is an important one for people to remember as well. If you breathe really quickly, people get lightheaded. And probably most people listening remember when they were teenagers and they played a game where they hyperventilate and they make themselves dizzy and, and fall over. And when you want to make yourself dizzy, most people don't hold your breath. Of course, that would eventually work too. But what most teenagers do when they're playing these games on the playground is they they pump their breath really, really quickly, and that has a vasoconstricting effect. So they're literally closing off their air passageways, closing off they have that vasoconstriction, so their blood vessels and their arterial walls, everything's closing up, and that's why they're getting dizzy. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, uh, uh -huh, that's right. And, uh, well, for people who are sick, it could be quite dangerous. Uh, at the same time, it's known from medicine that... Uh, Doctors, uh, including Western doctors and uh, thousands of Western doctors, used uh, so-called hyperventilation provocation test, so HPVT, so-called. And so what happens with hyperventilation provocation test, as it was believed and it was confirmed by numerous studies, is a highly specific test in order to define the most vulnerable system of the human organism. So, for example, it's uh, proven by studies there is uh, up to 9,700% uh, specificity of this test in relation to asthma, panic attacks, epilepsy seizures, uh, cardiac arrest, so like angina pain. So those people who have like certain health conditions and when doctors uh, kind of not certain what exactly do we have, uh, we could ask a patient to hyperventilate like controllable uh, hyperventilation for about two, three minutes. And then the person would experience, let's say, like if it is, it is person with epilepsy can get like uh, uh, signs that uh, epilepsy seizures are coming. People with angina pain, this get throbbing heart pain, like as if somebody put knife to their heart. So we feel, of course, very strong, unpleasant pain. Asthmatics get coughing, wheezing because the airway starts to constrict. So different people experience different effects uh, in this situation of controlled hyperventilation. 
And what happens uh, is that um, uh, those people who have these uh, specific situations are going to experience these symptoms. But of course, when a person has, for example, cancer or di diabetes too, uh, we would may not notice uh, much difference in their state, or they may have only maybe some psychological effects, but not related necessarily to the, let's say, cancer or diabetes or some other like metabolic conditions or autoimmune conditions. So for people listening, we have most people, the new, the new norm, in the same way that most people overeat sugar and carbohydrates and food in general, the new norm now is to overbreathe. So we're breathing too fast <laughs> and too rapidly. Yeah. And um, this has become the new normal. Again, if you, it, lots of parallels to food nutrition. If you roll back the clock 100 years ago, you see a lot of parallels in terms of the habits. And what this overbreathing is doing is reducing the amount of CO2. It's restricting our breathing passageways, restricting our actual circulation, and it can contribute or even cause a number of different health problems. So if we think about normalized breathing, to use your website title, your, your, your term, what we're looking for with normal breathing is slow and gentle breathing is that correct and and to throw a ballpark figure about half of what most people are breathing is kind of a normal rate is that a fair assessment yes yeah that's right like again in terms of numbers a medical norm uh, is six liters per minute doctor Boutique, yeah. yeah dr Boutique suggested his own norm and that is four liters per minute so even slower and less and average number for uh, like normal subject with this is about 12 liters per minute now how, how people breathe more people breathe more uh, by uh, uh, changing two factors first of all we breathe a little bit more frequently frequently faster so instead of normal normal 10 12 breaths at rest uh, people have about 15 18 so we breathe a little faster but we also take more air for one breath which is called tidal volume so instead of half liter we take about maybe seven eight nine hundred milliliters almost one liter of air for one breath and that's how we we get uh, hyperventilation uh, twice the norm this is for, for most people this is a real eye-opener and it, it, when you explain it to people it becomes really obvious they go obviously breathing a whole bunch is not that obvious but then we, but but here's what happens when you go online right now like the most popular breathing movement in the world right now is Wim Hof breathing and you have on my Facebook feed every day is a whole bunch of people <laughs> hyperventilating vasoconstricting jumping in cold water which is further vasoconstricting there's definitely some interesting benefits. There's interesting benefits to all kinds of things, but it seems really reckless. I mean, I know of multiple people who've died in the Facebook group that I'm a part of. I see people crashing their cars because they pass out in their car and they roll their car into a ditch. Um, it seems kind of stupid, and and it's not that there's not health benefits to this practice, but it seems like a really bad idea for people to be doing on a regular basis. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts? You've been doing this long before this controlled hyperventilation thing became super mainstream and popular. What are your thoughts in terms of what's going on right now? Uh, well, uh, I, I actually, Wim Hof could be very beneficial for bravery training too, if you know how to use it safely. Because the purpose of his technique is uh, to remove CO2, and he believes that when people hyperventilate, uh, we take actually, according to the uh, Wim Hof method, only 50 uh, deep fast breaths, so it's about one minute of hyperventilation. But then when they go underwater, we are supposed to hold their breath. And not, not only that, of course, we teach our students that during this technique, when they go like cold, uh, when they go into cold water, or some people, if they don't have chance to use very cold shower, it works to some degree as well. What happens? People need to practice reduce breathing during uh, after breath hold when we start breathing, and they continue reduce breathing for 10, 15, or even more minutes later. So therefore, the overall effect of correctly applied Wim Hof method, people, are, uh, students are able to retrain their breath in the direction of slowing down their breath. Actually, not only that, it's known from uh, Boutique world because you can find uh, like on our channel even a video of Dr. Boutique swimming in snow because he himself was a person who kind of promoted and uh, advised cold therapy, uh, cold, yeah. cold th therapy exactly. But uh, uh, of course, we've reduced briefing. And uh, what happens in my view is that people uh, may, some people may kind of uh, overemphasize this part thinking that uh, hyperventilation is uh, like the way to go 
that's kind of a b better way of briefing and uh, they can get uh, can experience health problems due to chronic hyperventilation that's one part another part which i want to kind of to add here is that uh, the Wim Hof method is not targeted to retrain one's breath so it's a, only as a temporary tool and uh, he believes and which can be true that you actually can kind of harden or make your immune system uh, less sensitive to different uh, like maybe poisonous or toxic chemicals as a, as a one of the beneficial parts of using uh, this protocol like Wim Hof protocol and so uh, therefore like uh, like I, I myself for years kind of uh, was skeptical about the Wim Hof method but I think first time it happens maybe three four years ago I got like a report from like a, 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 from one of our students who wrote that oh I tried Wim Hof method and it had incredible results on my CP like we measure control posts and like yeah like uh, uh, and he wrote that I was trying like this briefing exercises this and this and this and then with Wim Hof method I made like the biggest breakthrough like during last weeks of uh, or month of my breath retaining so well I, okay well I thought maybe just a, an accidental case then about two years later I got like few more reports like this from students they saying oh I tried Wim Hof method and of course these students know about a uh, briefing class uh, during of course like when you go in cold water and when you finish uh, and so like I, I realized like okay let me try uh, with uh, myself and with other students whom I, I, I uh, taught right now so I tried that and it's true it's it's actually working well very well and we have practitioners as well like uh, whom I trained who applied this technique with uh, very good results so Wim Hof is I believe it's very powerful technique it's very good technique but it should be used wisely in terms of you control hyperventilation you don't do it more than one minute because you start to lose electrolytes like some people you know we may try to hyperventilate uh, for two three minutes or longer actually kidney starts to increase you can lose sodium potassium uh, quite dangerous especially if your diet is limited like let's say somebody like using carnivore ketogenic diet PKD so all, all, uh, that would be quite difficult to compensate because if you lose sodium potassium in large amounts you can get cramps you can get pain it's all type of uh, abnormal effects but with correct application i believe wim hof actually has a really good potential and doctors probably could also explore it more uh, in time because it has additional effects on brown fat you know on uh, very large area in modern medicine doctors try to increase brown fat content in humans uh, and in position to white fat so there yeah, are I mean, one, yeah, one minute of controlled hyperventilation, that's an interesting practice, and that's certainly something that's part of pretty much all yoga traditions as well. It's not what I see people doing in practice. And again, I'm a member of this private Facebook group with hundreds of people, and they're doing many, many minutes, and they're using it as a trick to turn off the breath reflex, and then they're doing you know, breath retention and cold water scenarios. It, it, it just seems like pretty reckless. It, 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 a lot of it couples straight with free diving. You know, the, the free diving community has used a lot of these breath tricks for years. And it's very interesting to play with your own physiology that way. And it can be really empowering. You know, the first time I did it, I got up to a four and a half minute breath hold and my previous max was two and a half minutes or something. It's pretty interesting. You know, it's pretty interesting. But at the same time, I got a migraine and uh, I never get migraines. I also did a, a blackout. I just completely passed out in my own bed. And, um, and I get uh, kind of onset anxiety and never get anything like that from a traditional yoga pranayama but, or a potato practice. It was more than one minute of hyperventilation you tried, yeah? I did three sessions, yeah, so probably about a total of three minutes, correct? Yeah, three different sessions, which is the way that I was taught through this program. This idea of one minute is something that I've never heard anybody doing. All the people I know who've done it, whether they've done a live training or the online training, they're doing, they're doing way too much controlled hyperventilation, at least from the research that I've read to be safe and effective. Um, but it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. For example, I, for, for, it's an interesting thing to take a look at. I just don't, I see a lot of people doing really stupid stuff like, uh, all alone, turning off their breath reflex by dumping all their CO2, 
submerging themselves in icy water it just seems really it just seems really reckless when um uh you know when i when i come from a very different background with pranayama breathing and buteco breathing which is so calm and gentle and uh it's just it's just so benign in terms of what it's going to do it's it's going to make things better or nothing whereas if things go bad and you've just hypervented hyperventilated yourself and you're underneath a ice in a in a lake it just seems like a really bad idea well, good. I love what you're doing. This is. I, I wish this work got more press. It's been so effective for me. And I guess one thing that I really appreciated about it as well is there's so much science behind it, and the explanations make so much sense. And if you go looking at yoga pranayama, it's the the most of the textbooks out there. The explanations are nonsense. And if you go looking at the modern breathing move, movement, including I would, I would throw Wim Hof into this. People just throw. They make claims that are just ridiculous. People say, you know, they just make things that, that it doesn't, people don't understand what's actually at play here with breath, which is CO2. They don't actually understand the oxygen CO2 interplay. And once you understand that, everything really falls into place. And so I think it's really a shame that Buteco doesn't have more of an impact, at least in North America and Western Europe where I live. So I really appreciate what you're doing. For people who'd like to follow your work, pick up your books, follow you online, online work with you, where's the best place for us to send them? Yes, yeah, Amazon books would be great. And uh, people can look at, if, if they want, uh, study uh, our channel and website as well, normalbriefing.org. We have probably the largest learning section in the world in relation to breath retraining. We have like about 30 models related to different lifestyle factors. But uh, talking back, like kind of you mentioned, that pranayama is not well explained. <laughs> I have a book about yoga. And it's called Yoga Benefits are in Briefing Class on Amazon. So, and in, in, in this book, actually, I analyzed, like, uh, I did it a long time ago. I analyzed numerous books, and I found that uh, probably up to about 1950s, 1960s, actually, we had quite a good understanding and, and grip, like, uh, of pranayama, how to do it, because we would explain that the whole purpose of pranayama is that you should gradually increase the duration of all phases or stages. So you may, that means you inhale slower, you hold your breath longer, then you exhale longer time. So actually week after week, it's not like, of course, day after day, it's a really slow process. You should extend all stages of pranayama. And that means you actually start to accumulate more and more CO2. And that's very similar to Buteyka practice or practice it with briefing devices. And uh, in contrast, it's absolutely true. If we think about more recent uh, yoga books starting from 1960s, the idea that CO2 is toxic waste gas and uh, in pranayama you don't need to move anywhere, you can practice the same pranayama for years, then of course you would not get any <laughs> health, real health benefits as I believe. So then uh, it's uh, kind of became, uh, probably in a way maybe, it's, it's hard to say like how it, it took place historically, but for some uh, or like some reasons, uh, the teaching of yoga became not uh, the same as it used to be even like, let's say, 100 years ago. Because yoga is a very ancient practice. And looking at uh, yoga, I, I have also numerous quotes from Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Yoga Sutras, uh, Yoga of Patanjali. And in these books, we actually have really good understanding of breath. We say like, uh, breathlessness is deathlessness. So that means like you, you stop your breathing and, and the goal of pranayama is cessation, cessation of all respiratory movements. That means you actually stop breathing <laughs> completely. So, well, almost completely because uh, we have some yoga teachers uh, in, in our community and those practitioners whom I trained, uh, they are able to practice pranayama with taking uh, one breath every uh, first, of course, when we start, it's about one minute, but up to two and some even up to three minutes in one breath. So that means, of course, you have to, if we, if we, you do a little bit of math, that would be possible, like when people breathe, let's say somewhere around maybe two, three liters of air per minute, that would, it would be less than even a Buteyka norm. And so that's kind of, uh, and this is where, uh, as Dr. Buteyka believed, and many of his colleagues achieved this level, people are able to experience actually amazing benefits 
uh, even further when we slow down their breath even uh, uh, breathing much less than the medical norm or Dr. Buteyka norm. Because Dr. Buteyka, for example, himself uh, achieved up to three minutes for the CP test. So maximum breath holding time would be somewhere around seven, nine minutes and that close to world records. And many of his doctors as well achieved this result. What we discovered, many amazing effects, like the body gets into state of super resilience. Uh, sleep drops naturally to two hours, like which is totally shocking. I mean, natural sleep duration becomes two hours. It means people just sleep for two hours and they do not want sleep any longer. We feel totally fine because we have plenty of energy during the daytime, no sleepiness, nothing so, so on. With Dr. Buteyka norm, as I experienced myself and uh, a lot of our students achieve this level of 60 seconds CP, people sleep for four hours. So, and that's a stable state when we do it like for months, for years. Dr. Buteyka had two hours for many, many years. And, and that was like, uh, he, he did, I believe from evolutionary viewpoint, if we think about like life of primitive humans, or even like before we as, as species appeared on Earth, it's actually a huge evolutionary kind of advantage to have such extremely short sleep because you then will not be eaten, you know, or like uh, by some predators. So you would have much more energy, we believe. Actually, in yoga books, uh, very old yoga books, we write that when the yoga becomes a master, like we not only quote that uh, breath holding time becomes very large, but such people are also able to survive without food, sleep, and water for three days. And that would not um, would not kind of worsen the state. So we would be like uh, maybe searching for food or, and surviving and struggling uh, quite well uh, at this state when uh, again the breath is uh, is extremely slow and we are talking about again like achieving let's say uh, three four breaths a minute at rest during sleep or when you are un- uh, in the state like of automatic or unconscious brief- briefing really great information love this conversation i appreciate your work and let's keep in touch for the future if you have a back problem back pain or limited range of motion limited mobility and you go to a yoga teacher, it's very likely that yoga teacher will give you three yoga poses to fix your back. If you go to a strength and conditioning coach, like a personal trainer, they'll very likely give you three different lifting exercises to work on to strengthen your posterior chain. And if you go to a physiotherapist, they'll probably have you stand on a BOSU ball and do some weird balancing exercises. And the question is, for someone who's just trying to fix their back, heal their back, and have a youthful spine, who's correct? The answer is all three. If we look at spinal health, it comes down to strength, flexibility and balance all three and when we go to specialists they tend to see the world through their lens you know to the to the hammer everything is a nail and that's just not really true so when you're working on your own spinal health you always need to work on strength flexibility and balance ideally concurrently at the exact same time i'm mentioning this because my 14-day backbend challenge starts very soon this is our second round we had a uh, couple hundred students last time we just had a really great experience how it works is every day on instagram i do a live video i'll talk right to you and i'll walk you through some strength balance flexibility exercises every single day it's about 15 minutes per day commitment you can ask me any question you like and we'll go through this together by the end of the program your spine will definitely be more mobile you'll feel more braced and more supported with your posture and hopefully you'll find an improvement in your balance as well you can read testimonial stories from students who did the last course and you can learn more if you go to yogabody.com or else yogateacherscollege.com and check for our backbend challenge 14 day backbend challenge hope you can join us This week's nutritional tip is in response to a question from Lindsay. Lindsay says, Lucas, some breads make me bloated and gassy. Other breads, I feel great. I feel like they're even healthy for me. How can I figure out which bread is good for me? I tried gluten-free, but even that doesn't always seem to work. What gives? Bread is complicated in that it's a complicated food in most countries. I live in Europe where bread is simpler, although a lot of the corner bakeries are getting these weird processed frozen breads that have 20 ingredients. But a traditional European bakery, Southern Europe bakery, which is what I'm familiar with, they'll have simple bread that's, you know, water, salt, yeast, flour. And that's a pretty simple food. And modern breads get really complicated and people start using all kinds of weird flours, ancient flours, seven grain flours, all these kinds of different things. And so what could be causing the problem? Well, there's a couple of things. Gluten has been demonized in recent years because some people are genuinely celiac and some people are genuinely gluten intolerant or gluten sensitive. And gluten is a protein in 
wheat. It's the, it's the primary protein in wheat. And so gluten can trigger some people, but most people know. Most people know. But there's other things that can trigger it. There's actually a sugar in wheat called fructin. And fructin can also trigger people, which a lot of people don't realize. And lastly, there's yeast. And yeast can trigger people with some breads as well. And so, for example, I have no problem with gluten. I have no problem with the sugar, the fructin in, in wheat. But I do react to, to really fluffy bread. So, um, you know, flat breads, if I'm going to eat any bread, are really the only breads that I like to eat. All of the leaven breads, all of the breads with yeast, that yeast can affect me in a pretty bad way. And so bread's a complicated one because there's multiple allergens in there. Allergic reaction to food the idea that people think if they have an allergy that they're going to break out in hives all over their body or they're going to pass out or their throat's going to close off, they're going to asphyxiate. Those are the extreme levels. Much more common is you just have gas, indigestion, and bloating every day of the week from your morning milk or your breakfast cereal and toast. Same thing. You just have like slight gas and bloating or constipation, the opposite, or a little bit of eczema or a little bit of acne. These kinds of things are shockingly common, these subclinical reactions to foods, and it, it can get pretty overwhelming. So my suggestion is if bread's not working for you, stop eating it or start doing a little test where you don't eat much bread and you test different types of bread to try to figure out is it the gluten is it the sugars that are in that bread is it potentially the yeast in that bread try to figure out what it is that's actually affecting you because that'll help you get some insight unfortunately with food it really is a, a game of experimentation you have to figure out what works for you and your body and what works for you and your body today because the same foods you ate when you were five probably aren't going to make you feel good at 50 and probably aren't going to make you feel good at 70. It's really a constant learning journey. As long as you're open to the idea of experimentation, and as long as you pay attention, you'll be surprised at how much insight you can get. So hope that's helpful, Lindsay. We have a question from longtime listener Sylvia. Sylvia says, can you lose fat when you're bloated and gassy? Some natural medicine practitioners insist that if you get gassy and bloated after eating certain foods like cruciferous vegetables, those would be things like cauliflower and broccoli, you won't be able to lose weight. I think one of the people I heard it from was Dr. Cabral, who you had on your show at some point. Is that claim true? On the other hand, everybody gets a little gassy after having Brussels sprouts, but on the other hand, I have a much bigger issue with this than your average person. I have been limiting my intake of FODMAP foods for years now because even after eating half a pear causes me extreme and almost instant gas and flatulence that makes me wonder why I am still married. Um, I've been struggling with losing 10 pounds and I wonder if that may be the cause because I do reasonable uh, resistance and cardio exercise, walk 10,000 steps a day and throttle my carbs on a daily basis except for special occasions. I'm a healthy 25-year-old with perfect blood markers, fasting blood glucose in the 80s, just trying to get some answers before and throw in the towel when it comes to fat loss. Thank you for this show. I've been a long listener since before it was called the Lucas Rockwood Show. Cool. Uh, Sylvia, a couple of things. So let's go back to this FODMAP thing for people who aren't familiar with it. It's called the FODMAP diet sometimes, but it's really just, it should be called like a FODMAP reference or something. It's a really good reference for people. And here's the deal. Bowel issues, gas, bloating, indigestion are everywhere. Something like 14% of people are walking around with actual undiagnosed or diagnosed irritable bowel syndrome, like a full-blown syndrome. And subclinical levels are all over the place, meaning people are really suffering with gastrointestinal distress. And this isn't just a comfort thing, meaning this isn't just that you feel bad. It's not just an aesthetic thing that you feel bloated or whatever, look bloated. It's also an absorption thing and a health thing. If your gut lining is, in, if, you, if your GI tract is inflamed, if you are retaining water, it's going to impact the way that you absorb and digest nutrients, and it could potentially even affect hormonal levels and nutrient levels and things like this in your body. So it's something that you want to sort out for sure. So FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, basically the F in FODMAP stands for fermented, and then all of the other letters are signifying different types of sugars. Sugars are some of the more problematic foods of the common stuff that we eat. So the sugars in beans, the sugars that are in garlic and onions, the sugars that are in uh, cruciferous vegetables and, and breads and milks and things like this are some of the more reactive. The Sometimes we think of sugar as the most easy to digest food. You know, if you imagined you had a, a, a 
bunch of food on the table. The sugary foods look like the easiest to digest, and that is true with some exceptions. There's a bunch of sugars out there that are really, really difficult for us to digest. Um, on the FODMAP stay away from list is sugar alcohols, and these are something that are just terrible for me. Things like xylitol, sorbitol, um, maltitol, mannitol. These things for me are just a, a disaster pants waiting to happen. So I, I literally won't let these things touch my mouth. Doesn't matter what it is, whether it's you know chewing gum or a, a, a cookies or whatever it is, I won't touch those things. They just that just doesn't work for me at all. And the truth is most people have some kind of reaction. Lactose is a really, really common one. And again, people will say, oh yeah, I'm not allergic to milk. It just gives me gas and bloating. Well, that's kind of an allergy. It's just maybe a subclinical allergy. Fructose surprisingly is a big one, which is uh, what Sylvia was mentioning there about um, eating pears. Pears are really high in fructose. So probably that fructose is what's triggering you. It could be the combination of fructose plus the fiber. And then a lot of the the things found in beans obviously people know about beans but other common ones milk bread so in many cases the things that people are eating very very commonly can lead to this and even some common vegetables things like broccoli beetroot brussels sprouts cabbage everything in the in the, in the cabbage family fennel mushrooms can do it onions peas these sorts of things and so when you're listening to this you're going ah oh, not another cannot eat list but I'd encourage you instead to just think about this as a let me get curious list. And what I mean by this is if you're at a point where you're having gas and bloating pretty regularly, it's disrupting your, your life, you're not feeling good about it, and you want to figure out what to change, going on a FODMAP diet or an elimination diet or an allergy testing diet can be really helpful. And what you do by that is you really restrict your foods for a limited period of time. So maybe for a, you know, a, a period of 10 days or 21 days, you remove wheat and dairy and see how you feel. Introduce them back in and see how you feel. Maybe for a period of time you reduce fruit and eliminate fruit completely or eliminate fructose and then introduce it back in and see how you feel and you can get a, a baseline in terms of losing weight this is a really interesting question Sylvia because uh, most initial weight loss is in fact water weight and you'll lose water weight very quickly so carbohydrates retain water at a much higher rate than if you're eating fat and protein so what I mean by that is let's say everybody today ate the exact same amount of food calorically but you just ate zero carbs. All of you would wake up tomorrow, you'll look in the mirror and you'll go, huh, your, your, your fat will literally, that subcutaneous fat will literally look thinner and you'll look leaner, you'll look leaner. You'll see it right away in, in your body. If you do that for a week, it's very, very noticeable. So for example, when fitness models and, and stage performing bodybuilders and stuff that what they will do is as they're cutting on the way up to a competition they'll go no carb you know so they probably don't do that when they're training because they need to keep weight on and things like this but people will eat literally zero carbs it's just fat and protein and they will dehydrate and so this is why their skin looks so thin they're they're really dehydrated and lack of carbs helps you to dehydrate carbohydrates retain water and so if you're bloating you're also retaining water and that extra water 10 pounds is a lot but five pounds totally i've seen this happen when at cleansing centers and things people come in and within 24 hours seven pounds are down i remember one guy was down 12 pounds in something like 48 hours clearly they didn't burn that much fat not even close to that much fat but the water weight was such a big deal so is it possible sylvia that you're carrying around 10 pounds of water weight yeah it's totally possible i'm less concerned about the extra 10 pounds and i'm more concerned about you doing all these things right for your health and still having these gi problems i would encourage you to get a little creative playing around with different things meaning play around with an elimination diet it's there there are certainly people who react to everything and that's a real challenge in life but a lot of people just react to one thing i'll give you an example my daughter really reacts to saponins that are in um uh quinoa so quinoa has kind of this if you rinse quinoa you'll see kind of this foamy substance that comes off of it doesn't bother me at all i just rinse off quinoa and tastes just fine and digest actually very very well it feels very light but for her it gives her a raging bellyache other people will have a very strong reaction to eggs and they, they might notice when they have an omelet but they don't notice when the eggs are in something so sometimes just one simple food can be triggering you especially if it's one of the staple foods and unfortunately if you look at the top allergenic inflammatory foods you go right down the list of the most common foods that we eat things like corn things like wheat things like soy things like milk and all the dairy products eggs and so you know just rattle off the five of the top 10 foods that people eat 
full stop. And so you can see the challenge. So my suggestion would be to, to keep investigating, play around, because for sure when you're doing so many things right to be suffering, you know, GI distress and things like that, it's probably worth doing a little bit of investigation. Hope that's helpful. Thanks for sending in the question. This week's iTunes review is by Kate Wexter from the US. Kate Wexter says, I've recently taken two online classes with Lucas. Both classes were amazing. The online trapeze class followed by the 21-day accelerated business class, which is a must. I couldn't be more grateful for this podcast. I'm constantly learning about health and wellness. Lucas has touched on and clarified so many health issues that can be so overwhelming and confusing. This is my new favorite podcast. I'm sharing the Lucas Rockwood Show with everyone. Thanks, Kate Wexter. You've won the Yoga Trapeze. Email us at podcast at yogabody.com and we'll ship it to you. If you're a regular yoga talk show listener, you'll definitely want to get on my email list. Go to yogabody.com forward slash sign me up. When you enter your email address there, we always have free giveaways every month, yoga straps, water bottles, discounts in our shop, and all kinds of other things. When you sign up at yogabody.com forward slash sign me up, I'll send you just one email a week with updates about the show, special offers, new courses, and valuable information that I think you'll find useful. So go to yogabody.com forward slash sign me up to claim your free prize now. 